You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Welcome back on the NBA Beat. This is Aaron, bringing you another playoff episode, this time from the Western Conference. Keith Parrish, host of Grind City Media's Fast Break Breakfast and Grits and Grinds podcasts, joins me to break down the Golden State Memphis series from a Grizzlies perspective. After two closely contested and intense games, the teams are tied at one win and one ejection apiece. It's been a thrilling matchup, pitting the championship-tested Warriors against the league's best up-and-comers, the awfully youthful and talented Grizzlies, led by 22-year-old superstar point guard Ja Morant. His Grizzlies seamlessly posted the league's second-best record and an elite 26 road victories, despite their floor leader missing over 30% of the regular season. That supporting cast, spearheaded by Desmond Bain and Jaron Jackson Jr., has proven itself worthy of making a decisive impact. But can the key non-Morant contributors overcome injury and other challenges to get him the help he'll likely need in order to overcome the Warriors? Keith Parrish and I discussed throughout. Welcome back to the show, Keith. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Aaron. It's my pleasure. We knew we had to do another Memphis Grizzlies episode after having you on before the season. There was excitement about this young team who's exceeding expectations all over the place. We'll get into it. I'm assuming they've even exceeded yours. We're going to start with Ja Morant discussion, as you do when a guy goes off like that in game two, the biggest game of his life to date, and they're going to keep getting bigger. He was responsible for 66 of Memphis's 106 points, if you factor in the 19 assisted points on top of his 47 individual points scored. He's also been keeping his turnovers extremely infrequent at just 22 years old, despite all that usage, and playing with one eye, essentially, near the end of that game two Here's your opportunity to rave just about how special of a player he is and scarily for the rest of the league where he can still improve. Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of the stats on their own, you know, speak volumes when you look at guys before their age 23 seasons to have multiple 45 point scoring games in the playoffs. And it's Kobe, LeBron and Ja, And then like that accounting for 66 points like that's nuts. Like the list of players who've had a playoff game with at least 47 points, eight rebounds, and eight assists. I think it's it's like LeBron, Michael Jordan, Kevin Durant, Westbrook, and John Morant. Like that's it. So the stats on their own are, are eye popping. And then when you watch the individual games, the combination of the highlight plays, like the show stopping, like this is going to break the internet. The NBA has released all their social media data, and it's like, hey, these John Morant highlights. 140 million people saw them, and that's by far the most of any NBA player. So, like, he's becoming an absolute superstar. What he did in game two was a little bit different um, because 
I think the Warriors are probably kicking themselves, and we might get into this. Like they're probably kicking themselves with the way they covered him. They didn't seem to understand that he wants to drive left every time. They didn't seem to understand that the Grizzlies were really, really short-handed and had not their normal closing lineup out there, but they didn't force the ball out of his hands. But yeah, I mean, Josh is super special. And, you know, he struggled at times against Minnesota. And Minnesota did a really good job of guarding him in the first round uh, of trapping him and, you know, collapsing on him in the paint. But despite all that, like, you know, if we want to fall back to the numbers again, his numbers against Minnesota were pretty solid. And then now against Golden State through two games, the numbers are astronomical and everyone's seeing that like, oh, my goodness, this young guy uh, has just gears that other players don't have and um, looks to be, you know, maybe the face of the league going forward. Yeah, so exciting to watch. And the social media thing that you just referenced, that doesn't surprise me in the least. Um, One quick question. Do you think that the officiating will be different in terms of palming at all? I tend to be skeptical of that. I know there was one in in the final two minutes that the league report said was missed. Um, Sometimes he does carry the ball, but so do a lot of players in the NBA and and they tend to get away with it. Do you think that could factor in at all or probably not? I don't think it's going to factor much at all. I know NBA officials, they don't want to accidentally, you know, call a violation on a play that could be legal, which is why in the NBA, a lot of times we think that the players are getting away with travels. They're getting away with palming. I think the reason is because the officials, they watch these things in slow motion and sometimes they're like, yeah, we missed that one. But also there's, moves that sometimes look like travels and then are not travels. So I think that they normally default to letting stuff go. Also the whole year, I've joked about this a lot. Anytime there's a Grizzlies last two minute report, like a game that meets the criteria and they release the last two minute report, there's a John Morant travel on there. Uh, a lot. It's a very frequent thing. John Morant shuffles his feet constantly when he starts his dribble he gets away possibly with more travels than any current nba player and i have seen no like crackdown so far all year and you know i i don't maybe the the carry in the final two minutes um is something that like they focus on but i think that's going to cut both ways i think you're going to get you know if they crack down on traveling i think it's going to hurt both teams i don't know if it's specifically going to harm the grizzlies a little bit more Um, One of the funniest things that John Morant does that I've never seen called all season. uh, This is again, if you're a rule stickler or if you're just, you get tickled by people flaunting the rules after made buckets on inbounds passes. Like when he's beginning his dribble with no one guarding him in the backcourt, the man flagrantly walks. He takes like two, (laughs) two, three steps before starting the dribble. It's pretty funny. He's honestly, I think my favorite John Morant play. I've told this on several podcasts, my favorite plays of the year. They're not the dunks. They are, uh, after made buckets, he's failed to inbounds the ball three times this year, and the refs did nothing. He just took the ball out of the basket, passed it to someone like you're playing pickup, didn't even step out of bounds uh, to put the ball back in play. And like, I guess refs just aren't, you're not expecting that. And, and, um, and so the refs don't call anything. So like that really amuses me. Uh, but no, I, I, I don't think, I think the refs are too good. They're going to be too concerned about, I think, fouling. And uh, making sure the temperature level of game three doesn't get too heated, uh, I think, to worry about palming or uh, extra steps. 
And I also do think that it's easy for people to see it in slow motion as you oh, yeah. kind of reference, but he's so fast and athletic and no one really does what he does. So not that I want to give the referees a free pass on that, but it makes total sense what you said, that they would err on the side of caution, not call it in the moment when in doubt. But also someone like Stephen Curry, a lot of times he puts his hand under the ball too on those quick crossovers. So I don't think it will really matter either. I just thought I should ask. No, and also let's not forget in game one, Steph Curry got away with an egregious travel when the Warriors were up one and the Grizzlies were attempting to foul, like a very blatant on the ball, catches the pass, like takes two steps one way before even dribbling and then starts his dribble going the other way. And, you know, no one really talked about that. Uh, that, that came up in the last two minute report. They're like, that was a really obvious travel. But I think we're, as NBA fans, we're used to it. I think a good thing to transition to is um, what the Grizzlies can get out of other players offensively given how much he carried them on that end in game two. Memphis famously was really good without Ja Morant this season. It was impressive how they won 20 of 25 games that he did not play in. With him, they had a 632 win percentage, so they're good with him as well, of course, and that wouldn't be surprising to learn. To what extent, though, do the Grizzlies have a shot at winning the series if Morant doesn't average 35 to 40 for the rest of the series? Well, I think ideally he does not. I mean, in game two, Desmond Bain, one of the big stories of the series so far from a Grizzlies perspective is Desmond Bain is obviously hurt. He's had this mm-hmm. back issue. He was questionable for the game. And they talk like he can't, he couldn't at that point lift his arms over his head, essentially. So like he was kind of useless and then the other guys, obviously Dylan Brooks is ejected. He, he's suspended for game three. So like you're going to need a lot of job points, but you need other players to step up. You need Anthony Melton to score. You need Tyus Jones. Tyus Jones, you know, who had that incredible record as a starter when Job Morant wasn't there. Tyus Jones for this series, just two for 11, you know, and scored five points. So it's like, I think those guys will play better. Um, you know, there, there's a lot about the series where both teams are thinking maybe they could be up 2-0. And Warriors fans are like in game two, hey, we, we shot whatever it was, 18% from three. We're, we're never going to mm-hmm. do that again. And on a Grizzly side, you look at the series so far and Dylan Brooks, Tyus Jones, and Desmond Bain are something like 25% from the field. you know. And so it's like if those guys play a little bit better, and I think they will. I, I don't think you're going to expect them to do that poorly. But definitely the Grizzlies... You know, they're at their best when they get a bunch of assists, you know, when they're over 30 assists, like they're virtually unbeatable. And that happens when one guys are knocking on shots, which doesn't always happen for the Grizzlies, but it happens when just the ball is moving and those other players, if it is, you know, Bain having a big game, like we saw in the first round where he averaged 24 points or uh, Melton knocking down shots, Tyus Jones getting his score and going like that's going to be key for the Grizzlies. I do not think Josh scoring 40 and doing all the offensive heavy lifting is going to be a way for success because certainly the Warriors will adjust. <laughs> like they're going to make Zaire Williams beat them. Um, you know, like like they should have uh, in the last game. Yeah, and the formula for the Grizzlies winning all season hasn't been Ja Morant just doing everything. He's gotten so much support from his cast around him, and I do want to focus on Desmond Bain. 
He, of course, had a huge sophomore season, nearly doubling last season's points per game average. And he registered a tremendous opening round, but through two games, he's really struggled. I I think, um, as you said, a lot of it has to do with that lower back soreness. Clay Thompson's doing a really good job on him. Um, He's only made two total three-pointers through the first two games and is averaging seven points and not even an assist per game. If he is feeling better, and I realize that could be a big if, how does the team particularly get him going offensively? Well, I think if he's healthy, the the Warriors might be a little bit worried about this matchup because I think a healthy Bane, I think, can do incredibly against Clay Thompson. Like, I'm not that confident in Clay Thompson's ability to defend. And the Warriors keep playing these lineups where, like, you know, if Poole and Thompson are both out there, like, those are two things that the Grizzlies can't attack if Bane is healthy. Like, Bane in the regular season, uh, over 18 points per game. The guy was second in the NBA in three-point percentage and, and on pretty massive volume. Also, this entire year, Desmond Bain is incredible on the road. He uh, he shoots over 49% on three-pointers on the road. And so, like, if he's healthy and we get the normal Desmond Bain, like, he's this unbelievable weapon because when you start helping off of jaw, he's just there and he's just such a dead-eye shooter. He's a, he's a quick shooter. He's also gotten a lot better at attacking off the dribble, off the dribble. He he's great in transition. He's honestly developed like a semi LeBron fast break technique of just rolling like a freight train towards the basket, bouncing off people and laying the ball in. Like that's been one of the biggest steps forward he took in his sophomore year. And like he is absolutely key for the Grizzlies, especially with on Dylan Brooks. Like this is a a serious scorer, a guy who can really fill it up. And like if if he's hurt, like he was in the first two games, where again he's not a threat. He can't even quickly load his shot like he normally does. And you, you can get away with him, you know, cl- like having Clay Thompson check him. I know Clay Thompson is a historically great defender, but I haven't seen the athleticism from him yet this season. Where I feel like this is the old Clay. On defense, so I think that's something the Grizzlies will, would hope to attack. But like, it's the health, and we don't know. They, they've said um, on Thursday, the team said like, "Hey, he's better." You know, like, like he had a practice and, and he was better. So like, I don't know. That remains to be seen. There's no way you're going to tell the Warriors that he's not better. I, I don't think so. Like, that is probably the biggest key, honestly, going forward. Is like, if Bane is regular season Bane or first round of the playoffs Bane. The Grizzlies have a great chance, you know, to win this one. If he's not, if he's limited, um, and the Warriors kind of can figure that out, then it's probably going to be trouble for Memphis. And going into the series, a lot of people were paying attention to the playoff experience disparity between the two teams, and that's not everything. But the Warriors' three core players have appeared in five NBA Finals together. They've won three championships. They've spent time in the playoffs. Most of their entire pro careers, especially Draymond Green and Clay Thompson, um, before this year, Morant had appeared in just one postseason, which included that five-game series loss in the first round to Utah last year, and that was also the only previous NBA playoffs experience for the team's next four leading scorers this postseason. That includes Bain, Brandon Clark, Jaron Jackson Jr., and Dylan Brooks. And um, those five guys I just listed on average are 23 and a half years old. So it cuts both ways. They have the energy and the youth and 
They have more athleticism. I think especially now that Gary Payton is out for the series, Gary Payton the second. Um, so obviously, obviously there's that huge disparity in high-level playoff experience. And maybe you can discuss Steven Adams potentially returning. I know he and Kyle Anderson are the only two Grizzlies with deep playoff experience. How much or little do you expect that disparity to factor in to the series outcome in, in such a close matchup? Yeah, on paper, it's obvious that the Warriors have this massive playoff experience. I do think that the experience that the entire Grizzlies roster got each of the last two seasons in, you know, there's the Utah series, but I think also the play-in really helped them. So they had two play-in games last year where they went 2-0 and and they beat the Warriors in the play-in despite their lack of experience last year. Mm -hmm. I think that's really contributed. I think even the play-in the previous season, in uh, 2019-2020, where they lost to the Tim, uh, to the Trailblazers, I think maybe that helps them. I think those pressure games, like you could see the progression. Okay, we lose in the play-in. The next year, we win the play-in. We get smoked in the first round. And then this year, all right, we're not in the play-in. We take care of business in the first round. I think that actual experience recently for this team has been really beneficial. And outside of, you know, like Steph and Clay and Draymond and, you know, like Iguodala, if he ever suits up, you know, Maybe the rest of the of the roster for the Warriors doesn't have maybe that same playoff confidence that some of the Grizzlies players will have. So, so I don't know. Also, like you know, in the pressure of the moment, is does it come down to are are you comfortable because you've been there, or are you brashly confident and don't even know any better because you're young? Like we, both of these games have been clutched so far; they come down to the wire. I don't think the Warriors showed incredible poise outside of a Clay Thompson shot. Uh, in game one and in game two, they looked especially frantic and they're also prone to turn the ball over, which is one of the matchups of the series that plays into the Grizzlies hands. Clearly, I, I personally have a lot of fear and respect for, for clay and for Steph in the clutch, but I don't know how much overall that experience factor is going to matter or decide the series. Of course we could see game three and four, maybe the young Grizzlies come out shell shocked in golden state. Um, but it's not something I'm expecting. Yeah, I think also another thing that could balance it out maybe is home court advantage. It does help to have that extra game at home if it goes a distance. So we'll see if Memphis can at least take one of two in these next two games in San Francisco. But Golden State was just three games above 500 on the road this season, whereas Memphis uh, was one of the best performing home teams this year. So. I know they dropped one of the first two, but I think this series, if the first two games are any indication, it is going to go six or seven. And um, like it, it can't hurt that Memphis did earn uh, home court with the better record. Yeah. I mean, the having home court, I think, is going to be huge for the Grizzlies. And like you said, like the Grizzlies, great road team. This year, they've also had success at the Chase Center the last couple of years. Like they, they, they have won there uh, several times, including the play-in last year. I don't know if it's going to factor into this like a legit, you know, playoff series. Um, Melton, who's you know going to be forced into increased service at least in Game Three with Dylan Brooks out. He actually statistically plays much worse on the road. He shoots much worse on the road, so maybe, maybe that'll be a factor. And like Zaire Williams, if he's going to play a lot of minutes, like how does he look? being a 20 year old rookie on the road. Like those are going to be some big question marks. Um, Steven Adams, 
you alluded to earlier, he does have a ton of playoff experience. He's cleared for game three. Like, does he even play? We're not even sure. Like, that's a big question mark. That's an answer I don't even know from someone who covers the Grizzlies, like if he's going to get in. But I think, you know, sometimes I wonder if like the experience thing is just a narrative we like assign after the fact. So I, I you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what it's like to be an NBA player, obviously. And um, yeah, I, I, I do think Warriors fans are probably going to feel confident coming home. But I, I, you know, like, I don't think we're going to get blowouts this series, but obviously um, with the volatility of the Warriors and their ability to shoot the ball better than the Grizzlies usually, maybe we will. So just quickly following up on the Steven Adams thing, I realize we don't know if he's going to play, but um, the physicality has been talked about by both coaches and we've seen ejections from both teams, Draymond Green in game one and Dylan Brooks in game two. Um, Second chance points is an area where Memphis excelled all season. Although in game two, Golden State had twice as many second chance points, 20 to 10. And Golden State also had the edge in second chance points in game one, too. And that's something that Steven Adams, of course, helps with so much, given that he's the best offensive rebounder in the league. So if they don't get him back, I know they have a lot of lot of high energy guys and people that crash the glass. Brandon Clark is one just off the top of my head that comes to mind. Is second chance points something that you look at? And um, do you have any confidence if Adams doesn't play that the Grizzlies can make inroads on that statistic? It, it's a great question, and it's something I don't I don't have a lot of confidence in the answer. Against the Timberwolves, in the aggregate, they did win on the second chance points and they did win on offensive rebounding, even though there were a few games that went the Timberwolves way. And they did that without playing Steven Adams. You, you obviously highlight Steven Adams has led the NBA in offensive rebounding. And like when he plays, you know, generating those second chance points, like he, he would screen for jaw and then basically jaw would either make the layup or a lot of times let Steve Adams get the offensive rebound. And that was like a go-to play. It was honestly a go-to play for the Grizzlies the year before with Jonas Valanciunas in place of Steven Adams. And so whether or not they feel like the trade-off of maybe doing better on the offensive glass is worth it for maybe losing something on their versatility on defense. If they play Steven Adams, like I don't know exactly what the exact exact formula is for them deciding, you know, to go with him. I do think the Grizzlies, you know, it's a little bit surprising you lose the offensive rebound battle both times against the Warriors, but they're playing a little bit smaller. They're not playing their normal lineups. Jaron, he gets criticized a lot for his rebounding, but he's been he's been rebounding on the offensive boards pretty well this entire postseason um, when he's out there. So, like, can the Grizzlies win the offensive glass when they play maybe just one big, which they've flirted with a couple times, like if Zaire Williams is at the four? Like, I don't think so. I think you're going to keep losing the second chance battle to the Warriors, which I think is a it's a risky proposition because if the Warriors are making your threes, you assume you're going to lose the three point battle. The Grizzlies formula for success all year has been, all right, we're not a very good shooting team or bottom 10 in effective field goal percentage. We depend on generating turnovers and we depend on getting more looks at the basket through offensive rebounding. So like, can they do it? I know they can do it if they play like Brandon and Jaron together in the front court. That's probably their best front court pairing. They can do it with a lot of their other lineups. But if they do choose to play small, if they have Ja and Tyus in there, and then like if Melton is your three or like Melton and Bain are your three, four, which I think, you know, we might see if the Grizzlies fall down, then you're sacrificing that 
strength that you had in the regular season of offensive rebounding, trying to just get a, a little bit better first chance opportunities to score. And that's going to be, it's going to be a tough balance for the Grizzlies to figure out, you know, what is the best option, particularly if like you drop a game three, then you're like, all right, do we lean back to our regular season success and risk giving up more open looks on three pointers? Or do we try to outscore these warrior small ball lineups? Mm-hmm. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more show. Aaron here with a quick note from DraftKings. The NBA playoff action is non-stop at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. This week, new customers can bet just $5 on any team to win and get $150 in free bets if they do. Looking to turn a small bet into a big payday during the NBA playoffs? With DraftKings Same Game Parlays, you can do just that. Create your own parlay by combining multiple bets like which team will win, total threes made, total rebounds, and more. And boom, you have a shot at an even bigger payout. Right now, all customers can place the same game parlay with three or more legs and get a free bet back up to $25 if one leg doesn't hit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code TBPN. Bet $5 on any NBA team to win its game and get $150 in free bets if it does. That's promo code TBPN. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. Hey, this is Andy Liu from the Light Years Podcast coming to you from On the NBA Beat. And going back to the help from the supporting cast, Jaron Jackson Jr. can have huge offensive games. I know game one was really good offensively for him, not so much game two. But I'm more interested in his propensity for fouling. That's dogged him throughout his early career and sometimes can limit his playing time. So in six of eight playoff games this year, he's either fouled out or committed five fouls. Is it reasonable to expect him to play more careful defense or would doing that lessen his impact in a costly way and just not be something that's worth it for him to adjust? Well, I think comparing the Minnesota series against the Warrior series, the fouls that he's committed in the Warrior series are much better. As in, like, I think a lot of them were were borderline calls and a lot of them were him protecting the rim, fouling people driving towards the rim. Those are good fouls against the Timberwolves. The majority of his fouls were him committing offensive fouls, dribbling the basketball, him committing loose ball fouls on offensive rebounding attempts, him fouling three point shooters. Those are obviously terrible fouls or like away from the play fouls. Like he had to stop doing that. So in the regular season, it wasn't as big of a problem. Also, when he plays alongside Steven Adams, when he was playing the four, his foul rate plummets. When he plays the five, like he's had to do for most of the playoffs, it, it does go way up. So, like, there is a trade-off of how aggressive he can be if you tell him, hey, to, to quit committing these fouls. But so far in, in the two games against the Warriors, I have seen a big improvement, even though he did foul out of game two. It seems like a big improvement because he's getting these fouls. Like, there was one in the third quarter where Tom Izzo was caught on camera saying, like, I don't think that's a good call. Uh, or so I don't know about that call because like, you know, like he, he, he blocked shots or like he was pretty much vertical. You know, you understand sometimes those are called fouls on you. So I, I have seen an improvement and I hope it continues, but I do think 
you know, you said in whatever it was, so many of the games he has either five or six fouls. I think as Grizzlies fans, we do want to see him not end with five fouls and have like 18 minutes of playing time. We want him to foul out. Like, let's use up all the fouls. Let's not waste any minutes that he could be on the court. I know Taylor Jenkins has been pretty reluctant to have him play through foul trouble. I guess assuming he is going to be a little less effective if he's worried about the fouls. But like, you know, I think he's getting better. He's obviously very well aware of the issue, but whatever trade-off of him not being as effective because of the foul trouble, I do support, hey, if he fouls out in the third quarter, okay. Like, that's fine. I just want him to use all the fouls. No more of this, like playing 20 minutes and leaving with five fouls where you, you know, yeah. you didn't even foul out. Let's go ahead and play more minutes and, and use up all six fouls. As we wind down, it is important that we talk about the defensive end for the Grizzlies. You referenced this earlier in game two. They held Golden State to 18% from three, 42% from the field. I'm not sure how sustainable the three point numbers are exactly. In game two, but clearly Memphis is doing something right. Um, it was, I think, 0 for 13. Poole, Curry, and Thompson from three, all con- on contested attempts in game two, which is a good sign, even though you'd expect some of those to fall for Golden State moving forward. What have the Grizzlies thrown at the Warriors defensively um, to show that big improvement in the second game? I thought in the second game, the coverages were a lot better on like high screens, high pick and rolls, especially when Tillman was out there. I feel like he, he got lost or maybe the, the strategy wasn't the best where he wasn't even showing on screens. And sometimes he was, it seemed like there was a, a bit of confusion. I do think, you know, we don't expect the Warriors to shoot that poorly like they did in game two, but some of it is a little bit calculated where Andrew Wiggins is being left alone to shoot. I know he has the ability to make shots, but it felt like a pick your poison type thing where they're saying, okay, you know, like you can shoot. Um, Clay Thompson has been very poor on his three point shooting, but also Clay's not really getting that many great looks. Clay took some horrible shots in game two that were kind of like the old Splash Brothers from like seven years ago, uh, heat check things. And it's like, I, I know he's had big shooting performances in the last month, but those are shots absolutely the Grizzlies are happy to concede. Um, Steph is the one, you know, you're, you're obviously terrified of at all times. He missed a ton of very makeable threes, uh, including one uh, where Ja and Zaire got mixed up at the end of the fourth quarter and left him wide open. You know, as far as, as, far as Jordan Poole, I, I felt like he's been a huge problem and he's going to continue to be a problem for the Grizzlies. Um, they just have to try to continue to contest him, not foul him, and hopefully he doesn't make too high of a number. But I do feel like um, playing some of those smaller lineups that are versatile and, and can switch, playing Tillman, where Tillman is a more versatile big than someone like Steven Adams, Steven Adams gets back, um, does let the Grizzlies do a pretty good job of guarding uh, the Warriors. And like the Grizzlies are a good defensive team. They're not thought of as such, but they finished, I think, as the fifth best defensive team in the NBA this year, they guard really, really well. I think we're seeing that in this series. Um, During your preseason appearance on the show, you referenced a balancing act that the team's been navigating for the last two seasons. You said, we want to be competitive, discussing their mindset, but also be building toward a point where we are a contender. They're clearly a contender much sooner than a lot of people presumed would happen if they were eliminated after a hard-fought series, I know it would be a disappointment, but still, they'd be well ahead of schedule. 
but they seem really hungry. From your perspective, how hungry are they to to get there this season, whatever there means? Yeah, I mean, obviously, they're extremely hungry. They're extremely competitive, and they're extremely good. And as far as, like, the the schedule thing is so weird where I know – I can't remember what I said to you guys in the preseason, but, like, I was pretty optimistic about the year, but this has definitely exceeded basically everyone's expectation. Like, you finished with the second-best record in the NBA, which was unexpected. Obviously, there's caveats of, you know, they didn't win as many games as, like, the second-best record team normally wins in a season. But, like, they've been really, really good this season – you know, there was question marks at the trade deadline where you look around the league and you're like, hey, we weren't really planning on competing for a title this year, but the window's sort of open uh, the way the, the league is broken. Like, should we be trading in assets to get someone at the trade deadline? Like, they chose not to. They didn't see any, you know, maybe deals that made sense for them. But I do think you you have to look at the NBA and like, you know, someone like yourself, you've watched the NBA for a long time. You never know how long a window is going to be open. You never know when there's going to be a title opportunity. And this has been a strange year where, some of the presumed preseason favorites like the Lakers and the Nets just don't win a playoff game. And you don't want to have any regrets where you're like, this wasn't the Bucks' best year. And this was a year the Western Conference was wide open. So you don't want to have any like, we didn't go for it type expectations. So like, they're obviously going to, you know, do everything they can now in the postseason. The real question becomes like, at least the interesting theoretical questions are like, if you look at playing time, you know, like Zaire Williams. Zaire Williams, who was awesome in game two, made four three-pointers. But like, are there opportunities where you're like, hey, is this a developmental moment for Zaire? Or is there someone who's maybe better, like maybe Kyle Anderson might be better at a moment, but Kyle Anderson is a unrestricted free agent after this year and he's a little bit older. Like, is there, you know, is there any thought in the front office and on the coaching staff that like, we would rather defer for maybe a slightly worse player because we want to build this playoff experience that will help us next year. That's an interesting theoretical, I guess, exercise. I'm assuming at all times they're just saying, hey, listen, we're in this, we're in the second round of the playoffs. We, we got to win. We, we got to do best foot forward. But I think that part of it, if you think of like the long view of like a multi-year plan uh, of trying to be as good as possible, that's where it gets a little bit interesting where it's like, should we close with our veterans or should we say like, let's just let our 20 year old or our 22 year olds um, get their feet wet, have this experience. And maybe that'll be beneficial in, in the future. Yeah. I think that's a fascinating question. I agree with you that they're so close right now that you'd think that, that they would just prioritize win now, no matter what worry about the future later, but I know I have to get you out of here. So I just want to end on one question looking ahead. I don't want to be too presumptuous, but if the Grizzlies are able to emerge out of this round, intact how would the grizzlies um figure to match up with say the phoenix suns if uh, they end up playing each other in the next round i mean the phoenix suns are terrifying right now i certainly wouldn't pick the grizzlies if they advanced to beat the suns but as far as like playing the nba title competitors I like the matchup okay <laughs> type of thing. Like, if, you know, if, if you're choosing a team that's better than you, obviously it's not going to be an awesome matchup either way. But I do think the fact that the the Suns are not an overwhelming three-point shooting team, I like that. I like the fact that uh, the Grizzlies match up reasonably well. The big issue is going to be the Suns are just so awesome at defense. They have so many good options to put on John Morant and then the secondary guys, you know, like they, they can beat you in so many ways. And so like it, 
I do think the Warriors matchup is one where you're like, listen, they don't have rim protectors. That they don't have a great option to just guard John Morant, especially now that Gary Payton two is injured. And so coming into the series, I think Grizzlies fans were like, this is an okay matchup. The Suns, you know, not ideal as they're clearly the better team. But I do think the Grizzlies can have some success getting into their normal stuff that they like to do. Maybe getting out in transition, playing with a little bit of pace. But uh, I definitely would not be um, wagering on, on the Grizzlies to uh, be able to upset them. Yeah, I, I feel like we might see Jonathan Kuminga too. Oh, yeah. We haven't seen a yeah. lot of him. Yeah. And he's young and athletic and can be a good defender. Yeah, I definitely, I, I definitely agree. Thanks so much for your time, Keith. It was a pleasure having you on. Yeah, Aaron, always a pleasure. Thanks for asking me to come on. Thank you to our loyal listeners and those tuning in for the first time. Of course, also a huge shout out and thanks to Keith Parrish, whose appearance made this discussion possible between games two and three. Your host for this episode was me, Aaron Fishman. You can follow our show on Twitter at OnTheNBAB and me personally at ByAaronFish, F-I-S-C-H. This episode was produced by me. And you can listen to more episodes and subscribe to the show by searching on the NBA wherever you get your podcast. Ratings and reviews are always appreciated as they really do help more people find the show. So please consider that. OCNB is a proud member of the Basketball Podcast Network. We'll see you next round when we'll be discussing a conference finals matchup.